Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the 471st show of ROI. Our noted guest for today's show is Tara Nuren, adjunct beer 101 instructor at Wilmington University, beer and spirits contributors to Ford Magazine, and co-host of What's on Tap weekly TV show, who is going to talk to us about women's place in the brew house, a forgotten history of Elwives, Brewsters, Witches, and CEOs. The history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Jay Swords. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zap Zapfel, and our producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. David Baker. So to begin with, we want to welcome our guest to the show, Miss Tara Nuren. How are you doing, Tara? Hi, I am doing very well. Okay. I'm sitting here looking out of my front window in South Jersey. Hey, that sounds great. Um, we're looking at our window here in Central Davenport. Uh, we call this first segment Fadrook de Naren, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So can you start us off with some of the basic information of something I think we all take for granted, especially on the weekends? What exactly makes something a beer? (laughs) That is a great question, and it's not as simple as one might think. I actually had to grapple with that in writing the book. So I would say that in contemporary times, very generally, Beer is an alcoholic beverage made with at least the following four ingredients. Water, some sort of malted cereal grain, usually barley, uh, yeast, which ferments it, creates the alcohol in the little bubbles we all love, and hops, which are a plant that give beer um, some of their flavors, some of their bittering, some of their aroma, and some of their stability. Now, I'll just very quickly say that in the book I was writing about you know, the origin of beer and beer in hunter-gatherer times and what they, you know, what I'm calling beer now was very different looking and tasting back then. Um, We wouldn't recognize it as beer. Um, But uh, yeah, for the purposes of the book and for the purposes of this conversation, we can stick with what I I just said. Okay, that does sound great. Uh, Bring that you brought up... uh uh, from the beginning of time to hunters and gatherers to now, um, let's be a little more current. Uh, how has beer and its variety and circulation, would you say, has changed over the years? And of course, your premise is women have always had a huge part in making this. So um, why don't you uh, give our listeners a basic site? Because um, 30 years ago, 40 years ago to hear an IPA was almost unheard of. And yet they're everywhere. And uh, how did that expand, and where did women take part in this? So, you know, your typical American these days thinks beer was invented in Germany, and it's made by big burly men. Well, um, alcoholic beverages that are close enough to beer that we're going to call them beer. (laughs) I I am not arguing that point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it was probably accidentally discovered, like I said, when we were hunter-gatherers in southern Africa 200,000 years ago. Um, And people quickly started drinking this alcoholic substance um, as a way to get nutrients, calories, um, get a little romantic and loose, 
propagate the species. <laughs> um, and uh, Some things don't maybe, change, do they? <laughs> no, some things don't change. Thank goodness, right? <laughs> I might be out of a job if it were not me. Um, and throughout the, the centuries and the eons and across the world, um, beer developed as a staple drink for the family. So all over time and space, even toddlers have been drinking low alcohol, low alcohol beer um, as their beverage of, you know, their daily beverage for the reasons I just said. And then also in a lot of places, the water was either contaminated or believed to be contaminated. So beer was really the only safe drink that the families could, could um, imbibe. So it became women's work because it was part of cooking, right? It was a kitchen chore. Um, and I'll save my thesis for the book, my, my elevator pitch. I'm sure you're, we'll get to that. Um, but so that's sort of the, the evolution of beer. Um, and what happened, you've referenced 40 years ago, you know, in the 1970s and in the mid 20th century in general, you know what we were drinking in this country. It was like watery swill, right? It was light <laughs> adjunct lagers. <laughs> and what happened was there were people, beer lovers who would like go to Europe, discover that they had really good beer over there. And they'd come back to this country and they'd illegally homebrew beer. Um, well, Jimmy Carter, bless his heart, um, legalized homebrewing in 1979, and lo and behold, some of these homebrewers started commercially making some of these, I think you mentioned IPAs, um, stouts, bolder beers with more flavor, um, and that's how the craft, craft beer movement started. Okay. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061, or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. The radio show or events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the second segment of our show, which is referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today's show is Tara Nuren, adjunct beer 101 instructor at Wilmington University, beer and spirits contributor to Forbes magazine, and co-host of the What's on Tap weekly show, and we're talking about a woman's place in the brew house, the forgotten history of Brewsters, witches, and CEOs. Our history buff for today's show is Brett Menard and Jay Swords. Brett, as an amateur beer critic, why don't you start us off? So you said back uh, in the first segment that you were going to save your elevator pitch on the uh, <laughs> book. So here's your chance. Go ahead here's and pitch away. So here's the premise of the book, and I'm going to repeat myself just a tiny bit. So in the last, hopefully just a tiny bit, right? Um, in the last segment, uh, we talked about how beer for most of human history has been the staple beverage of the family. Um, small beer, 
morning, noon, and night, all members of the family. So it was women's work to make it. Um, and so what happened with just astonishing regularity throughout time and space is that at some point in so many civilizations, <laughs> I, I like get so emphatic, I lose my words sometimes, <laughs> throughout time and space, either the forces of politics, economics, or religion would act to replace the women who are the beer makers with men. And that's how we got to today where beer is associated with men, um, definitely in this country and, and pretty much throughout the world. Really? So, yep. um, Jay. So the title of your book has some terms that I'm not sure people will recognize, at least in the way that you want to use it. And, mm -hmm. and I should, in the interest of full disclosure, mention that, that I'm a mis medieval historian by trade. Oh, okay. um, so uh, can you talk to us about what an alewife is and, what, um, and how witchcraft also gets mm -hmm. tied into the beer um, making history? Sure. So, an so what has also happened throughout time and space, and the reason, one of the reasons it matters that women have been kicked out of brewing all the time, <laughs> is that in a lot of civilizations, women who were making the beer for the family would be able to brew extra and should be able to sell it. Um, you know, through the, through the village or to neighbors or whatever. And so women have been able to use beer as a way to, you know, gain a tiny bit of economic independence and be able to contribute to their family's well-being. Um, so an alewife is a woman who would sell their beer that way. Um, and as, you know, times got more modern, um, we saw the development of taverns. And so basically it's the same as a tavern keeper. But notice the language, and this has a lot to do with the theme of the book. It's an ale wife, even though it would often be the woman making and selling the beer. How is she referred to? As a wife. Oh, and then witches. Okay, so witches is a different, <laughs> different answer. Um, so in the Middle Ages, you know, throughout the persecution of the times of persecution of women, mostly women as witches, um, a lot of women were targeted by the church and by various European governments um, if they were sort of quarrelsome or independent um, or, you know, their neighbor didn't like them. It was really easy to accuse somebody of being a witch, right? Because it's hard to prove you're not. Um, so there is a myth that's making its way through pop culture that argues that Brewster's women who made beer were particularly targeted as witches as a way to control the female population. Um, should I give a spoiler alert and tell you the truth or should I just tell people to read the book? And no, find no, out give us the spoiler alert, please. Uh, yes. Okay. Um, so my sources, my research disprove that, or even if they don't disprove it, they make that highly unlikely. Um, you know, as historians, you'll appreciate that while it is a very interesting story and one that sort of politically makes sense, 
the timing just doesn't line up. Like one of the way, you know, some of the reasons people give for, you know, as proof for that story is that let's say um, a witch's hat, you know, the tall pointy hat, they say it looks like tall pointy hats that women wore in medieval marketplaces to be able to stand up above the crowd, to be able to be seen above the crowd so that people could find them and buy their beer, right? Um, or like the broomstick. Well, when alewives had extra beer to sell or extra beer that they were selling, they would put an ale stake that was pretty much a broom outside their door. So it looks like there are all these, there's all this proof, but, um, you know, if you look at the development of, these symbols being associated with witchcraft and the times when these um, instruments were actually being used by women who were brewers and the, say, like the actual specific fashions of the different types of hats that people were wearing at different times. It just doesn't line up. So great story, probably untrue. <laughs> um, when I was living um, in Africa, I lived in a small country surrounded by South Africa called Lesotho. And mm-hmm. on the way to go to the school, there were several rondovels where the women to make their money made yeah. their own beer. And you could tell when the beer was ready because it of the entire community their flags were the highest <laughs> when that flag was up there. And I'm not talking like a really nice flag was more kind of a shredded rag. But when that flag was up there, it instantly got the community's attention and people <laughs> kind of put what they were doing aside and went to those homes to try it. Um, do you still see a lot of those um, kind of setups for women through the world even today in other places? That's a great question. I was actually, well, you're telling me something that I didn't know. I didn't know that that type of symbol was still in use anywhere. Um, but there, it, you know, what a lot of people don't know is exactly what you're saying. There are still women in a lot of villages through Africa who do still brew beer as a cottage industry. They'll make it. It's still very primitive. Um, I don't want to, sorry, maybe primitive isn't the right word. It's, uh, it's, it's not exactly what you would call, uh, It do, they don't let it set and mature like <laughs> other places not do. Not Budweiser. No, no, it doesn't have that six-month wait. <laughs> so, but I'll um, go yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they're still they're still brewing it the same way they brewed it for a thou- for thousands of years in a lot of cases. And yeah, they're, they're still selling it, like you're saying, um, in similar ways that they have been for generations. Um and I talk about that in the book. And then what's really wonderful to see, which I also talk about in the book, is that there are now a few younger female brewers in Africa who are establishing craft breweries, modern craft breweries, and recreate, like bringing some of those traditions into the current commercial brewing world, you know, reviving some of the ingredients. Um, naming the beers after, you know, um, things that are important in their cultures. And they're starting to get some recognition around the world. And here in the United States, and I guess I'm a little bit on a tangent now, sorry. Um, here in the United States, we are just starting to see some traditional African ingredients come into a wider, um, come into wider use in American craft brewing, which is super cool. I can't wait to see more of it. Okay, Brett. 
So what are some styles of beer that were popular in the past that have yet to successfully be revived? Oh, that's a tough question. All right, good one. Well, um, we're just starting to see some Polish styles um, get picked up in a couple of craft breweries. Um, there's a style I talk about a lot in the book called Sati, which is um, from Northern Europe from about a thousand years ago um, that a couple of craft brewers have made over the years, Dogfish Head, um, chief among them. Um, and, um, you know, like we're saying, just traditional African styles that may or may not have names in English or even have like a stylistic name as we know them that are being sort of used, um, by brewers for, primarily from the African diaspora, um, here in the United States and, and a little bit in the Caribbean. Um, so those are some, there's, um, a general style of beer called Gruet, which, um, was what women made um, in in medieval Europe before hops were popularized. Um, so it's pre-hopped ale is what grew it is. And sometimes people will play around with that, but it never really seems to take off. <laughs> I've, I've had grew it once and I adored it and could never find it again. So... Yeah, and the thing with grew it is it's kind of whatever you want it to be as long as it kind of qualifies as beer and doesn't have hops in it. So <laughs> people, people are just too in love with their hops. You know, I love how they play rule, live with their rules with yeah. this. You know, it's, <laughs> Well, and that by itself is interesting. Um, I just spent some time in New England and uh, visited a meadery. And Ooh. certainly the, the meads, the different kinds of meads that they're making and the ingredients that they're using are are only loosely, vaguely true mead in a, in a medieval mm. sense or a traditional sense. And we do have sort of decided that it's perfectly okay to play, which I think is fun. <laughs> <laughs> Without a doubt. Um, well, you know, we, we keep getting back to, you know, what is beer and, and what were people drinking, you know, way, way, way back. And really it was more like their alcoholic beverages were more like mead really than beer because they sure. were probably fermented and sweetened with honey. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, Tara, because we've, we've kind of skipped around it. Um, give us a sense of what a medieval beer, or I'm even thinking of an ancient Egyptian beer would have been like, and just how different in what ways is it different from the kind of thing that you would pick up at your uh, local hy or, or um, grocery store, whatever it is. <laughs> well, if we're going back to Egyptian times um, and pre-Egyptian times, which would have been um, brewing um, in ancient Mesopotamia, um, it would have been very clumpy. <laughs> it wouldn't have been filtered. Um, there might have been actual bread in it. Oftentimes we find ancient breweries um, either next to or part of ancient bakeries. And so sometimes they would actually bake bread and use that as their starch source. Um, and, you know, you might have seen these um, ancient drawings of people. They tend to be women, but you can't always tell, um, drinking out of these big vats of beer between their legs on the floor, drinking it through a straw. Have you ever seen those? I have, yes. Yeah. 
So um, that's believed to be that the straws would have been puncturing all the sediment and all the clumps of bread that had accumulated on the surface of the, of the liquid. Um, now, if you fast forward to, let's say, um, you know, medieval era Europe, um, they were drinking what was called ale. And really, it's kind of what we were just referring to as gruet, which was pre-hopped alcoholic beer-like substance um, flavored, bittered, preserved with like anything they could find, any kind of roots, tree bark, things that would kill you. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> yep. You kind of took your life in your, in your mouth if you were drinking beer back then. <laughs> so you're saying that when Al Capone and those guys were cooking the beer with uh, turpentine and because they didn't want to pay for actual <laughs> right. liquor, they were just following ancient tradition of how to create liquor. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, you didn't ask this, but if you fast forward even more, well, work back from Prohibition times, but forward from Europe, um, in colonial times here in this country, um, they didn't have a lot of access to hops. So they would use a lot of spruce, um, what they used to call Indian flint corn as their starch source. Um, yeah, a lot of a lot of um, a lot of spruce. Okay. In fact, there are some beers made by contemporary Philadelphia and other craft breweries that um, recreate what they believe were some of the presidential recipes, the founding fathers that have spruce in them. Okay, let's talk a little more modern. You're talking about how, of course, women were pushed out of um, the brewing um, world because of economics, religion, or politics. I think that's the first time any of those three have pushed anybody out of anything. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, first time. Uh, let's talk about the modern world. Um, our, we have a very good friend of ours who is a beer judge, and he makes some fantastic beer, and he went through these rigorous courses uh, to get licensed to do it. Are there a lot of women out there in today's world um, starting their own breweries and going, becoming judges and taking a greater role in this process? Thank goodness, finally, yes. Um, the person who trained me to get my um, beer judging certification is a top-level beer judge, um, and she, I just gave it away, she's a woman. Um, okay. And, <laughs> duh, spoiler alert, um, and there are upwards of 9,000 breweries in, in this country now. And so mercifully, there are so many that it has, the numbers have opened up. I don't want to say room, but with so many, there are so many more women now at all levels of brewing. And that's true for not just women, but all kinds of underrepresented populations, um, a very, very small number, unfortunately, but about 1% of breweries are believed, craft breweries in America, I should say, um, are believed to be owned by African Americans. Um, there are now two African American beer festivals in this, in the country. Um, so you are starting to see more and more and more people who aren't bearded white dudes <laughs> in the profession. Where are those, where are those festivals at for the black Americans? Yeah, so one of them is going into, I think it's sixth year. It's called Barrel and Flow. It's in Pittsburgh every year. Um, and that's not just a beer fest. It's a two-day conference um, 
of beer and and um, black entertainment and black artists and cool. and black um, entrepreneurs. And the other one, I have to be honest, it's I just saw a press release about it. It's a brand new, and I don't remember where it's going to be held. Um, sorry, oh, no <laughs> but now there are two coming up as of this year. <laughs> All right, Brett, we'll give you the last question, and then we'll give the floor to Tara. Okay, so I'll try and make it another relatively quick and easy one. So the most popular class at my undergrad was a um, combination history and chemistry class called Beer and Society, uh, where you learned about the history of alcohol and then brewed your own. Can't understand why that would be popular at a college (laughs) class. Um, But how easy is it for women to start brewing as a hobby? Is is there a lot of equipment that you have to put in? Is there a a fairly high initial investment or is it something that you can more or less decide on a lark, oh, I want to try this out? You can pretty much decide on a lark. You can try it out. A lot of professional brewers started out with a Mr. Beer kit. And that's true. It's a box. And usually they get it for Christmas. <laughs> and um, it requires almost no equipment. Um, part of what the homebrewing community is trying to work toward is being more inclusive of women and non-traditional brewing populations. Um, because homebrewing is such a pipeline into commercial brewing. Um, and you know, intentional or not intentional, there's been a lot of gatekeeping in homebrew clubs over the years. Um, and so the National Homebrew, the American Homebrewers Association just hired its first female executive director. Um, and I know a big push for her is going to be getting more women involved in homebrewing. And, and luckily, you know, outside of homebrewing, um, there are now international organizations um, geared toward women in the beer profession. And in the last very few years, there's been a lot of scholarships that have been created, um, courses and scholarships created specifically for women and additionally women, well, for women in general, and some are specifically for women of color. Okay. It is customary that we give our guests the last word on the show. Tara, in about a minute, why do you think knowing about the history of women in brewing is relevant in today's world? Um, because it's, women have always been in the brewing world, and the BS that we have to put up with from ignorant men who think they own brewing is driving women out of the industry and creating a dangerous environment in certain cases. Um, so when women and men realize that this is something that women have really ruled <laughs> for thousands of years, my hope is that they'll get you know, more acceptance, more grace, more opportunity, more empowerment. Um, and I do get that feedback like all the time from women in the industry who read the book that, that it is helping them see their role more clearly. When we come back, we'll wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 471st show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. The producer and engineer is Dave Baker, our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley, and we'd like to thank our noted guests, Tara Nuren, adjunct beer 101 instructor at Wilmington University, beer and spirits contributor to Ford's magazine, Forbes magazine, and co-host of What's on Tap weekly TV show, who talked to us about women's place in the brew house a forgotten history of alewives brewsters witches and ceos the history bus for today's show are brett menard and jay swords this is roi on relevant or irrelevant on kala the views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of saint ambrose university or kala we would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great basutu proverb hotsopula nala peace reign and prosperity and remember historians are horrible fortune tellers good night <laughs>